Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's September the 21st, a Wednesday, 2022. Uh, the Ukrainian crisis continues to be a global crisis. Um, it's not just Russia, it's also China. China is calling for ceasefire now through dialogue uh, after Putin's address about uh, accelerating the war, calling up reservists, maybe even uh, offering the nuclear option as some sort of um, threat to the West. Um, China seems to be the, the honest broker in this uh, conflict, which is pretty interesting in many ways, given uh, the rather poor press China often gets in the West. Um, much of that poor press is bound up in US-China trade war, particularly when it comes to tech. Um, and even Joe Biden now is becoming a a, a so-called China hawk. He doesn't look like a hawk, but maybe he's behaving like one. Uh, meanwhile, the trade conflict continues, tech terms and also in, in terms of the dollar. In overall terms, uh, a few months ago, I had C. Fred Bergstein on the show talking about why both Trump and Biden are dangerously wrong about China. Um, he has a new book out, the United States versus China, the quest for global economic leadership. And Bergstrom uh, stresses the fact that much of China's behavior needs to be understood in terms of the looming conflict in economic terms between China and the United States. Uh, last month, I had the Wall Street Journal uh, writer Josh Chin on the show. He um, is the co-author of a new book, Surveillance State, Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control. And we touched on economics, but we mainly focused on politics. Uh, his co-author for this book is my guest today, Lisa Lin, who is joining us from uh, New York. She's normally based in um, Singapore, but she's on book tour. Uh, Lisa, I, I apologize for the rather long-winded introduction. Where I want to begin with you is the economics of the surveillance state. I know you're an expert on tech. Uh, is there, I mean, there's obviously, and, and we talked to Josh about the Orwellian quality to the surveillance state that, that uh, Xi is building in China. Uh, but is there an economic rationale too? And is that how we need to think of China rather than as, Maoist, somehow think of it more in terms of its economic goals? Yes, yeah, so I would kind of think of the Chinese surveillance state as partially a huge industrial project because you're essentially installing huge networks of cameras, uh, all running typically on 4G speeds um, that kind of link up the city. And, and if you think about the reason why I say that's economic rationale to it is because if you think about the world's largest camera uh, security camera makers, the two largest um, security camera makers are both Chinese. They're Higvision and they're, they're Dahua. So this whole push to make China, China this big surveillance state and like highly networked with many cameras, that's, highly, that's very, very beneficial. 
for two domestic companies. Now, the second reason why there is an economic rationale is because this surveillance state is not is also based on China, Chinese cities building up a whole host of other tech infrastructure, right? So you're seeing, you know, cities kind of, in order to make themselves smart, they're installing 4G, now 5G networks. Uh, they're trying, you're trying to run enough things within the city. They're building infrastructure for all that. So think of the surveillance state, not just as a surveillance and a techn technological project. It's also an industrial one. Yeah, it's fascinating, Lisa, because... I, like I think a lot of people, tend to think of this new quote-unquote surveillance state as a kind of digital Orwellianism, 1984 on network steroids. But you're suggesting that it actually feeds the economic strength of China. So it's, it's more complicated than just uh, Orwell 2.0. Is that fair? Uh, I, I would... I would put it as, you know, the, the Chinese government had the intention to move towards um, an environment where they could surveil all its citizens. And it, it really just helped because, you know, all of the parties that they were sourcing from, most of the, most of the large, uh, they call them system integrators, most of the large system integrators winning these huge lucrative government projects are Chinese. Uh, and for the bulk of what you use in the surveillance state, you know, a lot of it's Chinese as well. Like I talked about the cameras earlier. There are also the Chinese AI startups that, that are leasing their facial recognition algorithms to the Chinese police and helping them build up, you know, the facial recognition and computer vision capabilities of, of these agencies. So there, there is a lot of money sloshing around, which you never think about when you think about surveillance. Because people yeah, tend to think about yeah, yeah. Yeah, your your take is, I'm not sure whether it's more or less chilling, Lisa. Should we, should we be more fearful of this model, or or does it actually suggest that maybe this again, quote unquote, surveillance state, isn't quite as chilling as it appears because it's simply feeding the strength of the Chinese economy. So it's not as if. Xi and his political allies want to watch all the Chinese citizens. They simply want to sell cameras. So I don't think we should distract ourselves from the true motive of the reason why the surveillance state was built. And the surveillance state was built in order to provide the authoritarian government in China just more control and more visibility into the private lives of its own citizens. I'm just saying that along with that motive, came along this secondary externality, positive externality from the surveillance state for the Chinese government, and that is it was feeding its own domestic economy. And uh, I'll, I'll give you another example. We talked about the Chinese AI startups earlier. One of the startups, SenseTime, which recently uh, listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, SenseTime is basically the world's most valuable facial recognition and AI startup or it was the most facial, um, valuable facial recognition AI startup before it listed. And that's thanks to these lucrative government contracts. And if you really, and, and what I did was I poured through a lot of SenseTime's um, quarterly earnings and results, just as they were, just as they turned in their, uh, their prospectus for listing. And you would see that these smart city contracts to the government would provide 50% of their revenue. And a lot of that revenue would just be reinvested in the company in order to help them hire better talent, 
in order to de develop better algorithms and so on. So th there is a bit of a symbiotic relationship between the Chinese government contracts and the Chinese AI startups. But I, as I said earlier, I, I would not take away um, from the fact that the Chinese surveillance state was built for one purpose and anything else was extra. Lisa, you and Josh wrote, um, and I think this was taken from the book, uh, an excellent uh, Wall Street Journal Saturday essay, The Two Faces of China's Surveillance State. And you state at the beginning uh, that this new phase of the surveillance state will bring fresh scrutiny to one of his grandest ambitions, the creation of a new type of modern government powered by data and mass digital surveillance that can rival democracy globally. Um, I think you've summarized the, the geostrategic architecture of the 21st century there. Uh, talk a little bit more about, firstly, this new type of modern government. Is it a type that we've never seen before in your mind? Uh, that, that's an inter interesting question. It really depends on where you are. Um, so, so I would say China is in a position of authoritarian government that it doesn't have a lot of the democratic institutions that you would see in, in democracies such as the U.S. For example, you know, free speech, um, freedom of press, free elections. China doesn't have this. So because it doesn't have this, it, it is very difficult for an authoritarian leadership to understand what's going on you know, with, with the just common, with the common man. So they essentially, what China is doing is using data, mining and crunching that data to understand what are the pain points from their population in order to react very quickly to them. Because, you know, it, it doesn't get the same sort of feedback loops that a democracy has. China basically doesn't, because its leaders are not elected uh, by popular vote, it doesn't really understand what for a vote is, or you know, it doesn't understand what the local person, like a local Chinese resident, wants. So with these systems, the idea and the social contract behind it is: you give us your data, you let us surveil you, but in, in return, we find out what what are the pain points in your life, and we make your life frictionless. For example, like I, we have an um, example in the essay of a city called Hangzhou where the, the same surveillance systems that you see used for very nefarious means in Xinjiang are used to just make the lives of its Hangzhou's re residents just a lot more efficient because the surveillance helped to monitor traffic. And when that when it do over peak hour, when you see a heavy buildup of traffic, the, the CCTV cameras pick it up and they turn the traffic lights green for longer. And in, in addition to that, you know, the CCTV cameras help to pick up like fires, for example, in an isolated neighborhood that maybe nobody would have seen. And the fire could have raged for an hour before someone called the, called, um, called the fire engine down. So it, it's little things like this that China is hoping would allow it to build uh, a governance model that challenge democracy. Is that just the PR of the state, though? Um... Uh, I mean, it, it it doesn't actually sound that bad, especially compared to the dysfunctionality of Western governments in the United States in particular. Um, to what extent is this, uh, this new type of modern government uh, an extension of Singapore's smart city? You live in Singapore. I've spent some time in Singapore. I've written about Singapore in a couple of books. Um, 
it, it sounds to me in the way you present it as if it could be coming out of Singapore. So this is one interesting aspect that I noted as I was writing the book. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the book was reported in China, but written in Singapore because I'm based there now. And Singapore and China used to have a history where the Chinese would look up to Singapore for city governance models um, because they, they felt that Singapore was, you know, the leadership kind of understood the same sort of pain points as the Chinese leadership did and had the same sort of paternal paternalist as Chinese leadership. Uh, any, anyone who knows the Singapore government knows that we are a democracy, but in, in reality, there's very little opposition. Uh, so the ruling party has been voted into power like constantly. So it's a bit like so China. We should, uh, too, but, yeah. Lisa, maybe we should, when we talk about the word democracy in Singapore, put asterisks around it. I mean, it's certainly not a Western-style democracy, is it? It, it is not, which is why I, I was trying to explain that in Singapore, even though we have free elections, there is no opposition party to speak of, uh, or at least in recent years, there has been some, but for the longest time, there isn't. And the ruling party uh, in Singapore has been ruling for the last more than 50 years, uh, ever since independent. So I, what, what I wanted to say was, you know, I this with this Chinese-style AI-enabled surveillance, that was when I saw the tables turn that was when I saw Singapore learning from China on adopting these systems. Uh, when I first moved back, you know, late 2018, early 2019, I remember I still, I, I still had the vision of cameras in China all over my mind. Like there was one subway station in Shanghai, which I walked and there were 17 cameras between the entrance and the gantry to just go into the subway station. Uh, 17 cameras just on that short walk, um, from one point to the other, I began, as I got to Singapore, I began to see how China's surveillance state, the model of it was beginning to expand beyond its shores because in Singapore, I started to see all these cameras pop up as well. And Singapore now has probably about 80,000 police cameras um, across the city. And these are just these cameras. You know, there are cameras belonging to the transport ministry and everything that's just popping up popping up. And this is for a city that's smaller than New York City itself. Uh, and that's a lot of cameras. So Singapore, actually, I feel, saw the Chinese model, thought it was an interesting one and decided to adopt it, which is a very Lisa, large um, Let's get to this idea of this system, this type of modern government, you and Josh Wright, rivaling democracy globally. Is this a, a conscious decision on the part of, do you think, the Chinese government to come up with an alternative to democracy? I think what China really wants is it wants a safe space to, to have its own governance model thrive. Um, and the reason why I say that is because we, we also looked into the export of these surveillance systems overseas as of last count in 2020, when you looked at the number of China-made surveillance systems outside of China, they were found in 80 countries and essentially every continent except Antarctica and Australia. Um, but what was interesting to us was there were no conditions attached to the sale of such systems. Um, that there was no, you know, there was no agreement when the system was sold, even when the Chinese gave other these governments, the customers. 
substantial loans to buy the system, there was no condition that 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 government had to follow the same governance model uh, as China. So it, in a way, it was like a no strings attached um, sale of these systems. What I found, though, which is a bit more in, in my research, was China used the idea that these systems sold overseas and adopted overseas to validate the system in the eyes of its own Chinese citizens. So every time a system was sold overseas, you would see state media play it up, and state media would say, look, you know, X and Y country has adopted our system. Uh, that's proof of the technological innovation we have had and progress in the field and that Chinese companies can go global. So a, a, lot of, a lot of this expansion of the surveillance state overseas is just to reaffirm to its own citizens that China was doing the right thing, and it was you know, breaking ground. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the, uh, the movie The Godfather, Lisa, but um, one very famous uh, incident, I think it was in Godfather 1 or 2, or perhaps in both, was the idea of the mafia... Uh, presenting an idea to somebody and saying this is uh, too good to turn down. In other words, they were making them an offer that they couldn't refuse. Isn't what China is doing, particularly in Africa and other parts of the developing world, in offering these surveillance systems, aren't they offers which are too good to turn down? Again, you know, I... I... You, you mentioned economics, the economics of the surveillance state. Uh, I, I think China has made decent offers to governments that are keen to buy these systems, but I don't think it has, I think a lot of it has to do with economics. Um, because if you look at the number of sec security cameras you have in China now, you have more than 100 million, which in a country of 1.4 billion people, you know, it's a staggering amount. And at some point, the camera demand and camera installations in China will peak, it will saturate. And the world's largest security camera makers, Hikvision and Dahua, both of which are Chinese, are going to have to find new export markets. So it has an incentive to push the surveillance model overseas and just to generate global demand for it. Because, you know, Chinese companies do depend on this export machine coming to keep themselves afloat. Yeah, it's fascinating. I never really thought of it in those terms. But again, selling these surveillance systems all around the world to feed Chinese industry. Lisa, you've written a lot about the tech trade war between the United States and China. You had a, a, a Wall Street Journal piece recently about uh, U.S. Uh, chip curbs uh, delivering setbacks to China's AI ambitions. Also, lots of stories about TikTok bleeding U.S. execs. Um, is the 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 uh, the trade war that you write about the the chip war? Is this the core uh, front in terms of determining who's going to control the twenty first century? Do the Chinese consider, for example, AI and chips? It, is that the way in which they're going to? if not rule the world, certainly be incredibly successful and rival the U.S.? I think that's what a lot of people believe, um, the Chinese as well, because you know, they, they have industry plans, five-year industry plans, and there is one particular industry plan 
event called Made in China 2025 that has particularly riled up U.S. policymakers. And this happened a couple of years ago where China had put in target about beating like, or rivals, rivaling it's the, the global competitors, the best competitors, and then subsequently beating them. Uh, a lot of this is Chinese rhetoric, of course. Uh, there, there is motivation behind it, but a lot of the Chinese industrial plans are also written in Rara language, so you have to kind of take it with a pinch of salt. I do believe what China is pursuing now is a goal of self-sufficiency. Um, and over those five years, beginning with the, Biden, with the Trump administration and it's continued under Biden, and we've seen you know, the U.S. really take a stand uh, and, and label certain industries as strategically important uh, in which they view China as like a large competitor and, and on, on that front you know that has resulted in Chinese companies getting cut off um, their access getting cut off from, from high-end technology that has, has resulted in a bottleneck uh, in China for a lot of what they wanted to do so I think you know what, what China is pursuing now is self-sufficiency in technology and it will take a while because uh, China just really doesn't have the know-how and the same talent the U.S. So China is pursuing sufficiency in order to wean itself off American technology because of everything that's happened in the last There's a big difference between the theory and the practice of this. Your pinned tweet on your Twitter page is a piece you wrote about the Shanghai lockdown and the logistical catastrophe that came out of that. Um, what What is the current... Stain, I know you're not an economist, maybe not, not an expert on the Chinese economy. You focus more on Chinese tech, but you have as good a, an eye for, and I use that word carefully given the surveillance state nature of the Chinese government, you have a, as good an eye as anyone for the current uh, efficiency of the Chinese economy in a, in, a, in a late COVID age. What's actually happened, and again, excuse the verbose question here, uh, Lisa, but what's the current state of the Chinese economy, particularly the tech economy, uh, in, in, in a post or in seemingly a post-COVID China? Uh, Biden just ended COVID. I assume the same is kind of happening in China. I saw a headline. Even the Chinese are letting tourists back in. So we seem to be tiptoeing out of a COVID world. I, I don't think the Chinese leadership have the post-COVID in their mind at all. Um, from, from what I see, it's still COVID's raging and what it, the, the term they have in their mind is zero COVID. Um, and when I say zero COVID, what I mean is what the Chinese leaders have, have done, and this has been the strategy for the last two years, of two and a half years since the coronavirus came out. They have, once positive cases have been found, they have locked down entire neighborhoods, um, and in many cases, they've locked down entire cities. And then Shanghai was one. You know, Shanghai was locked down in April for almost two months. That meant close to 25 million people never left their homes um, for almost two months. Uh, and it was very frightening because, you know, you have food, sh- food shortages, you have medicine shortage- shortages. A lot of people were unprepared for that lockdown. And that strategy has continued. And just recently, we saw another big city, Chengdu, um, which in the southwest of China get locked down as well. And they're, they're out of the lockdown now. The lockdown lasted two weeks. Uh, but Chengdu is a, a city of only one million. And all, all these sudden, like, abrupt 
lockdowns have been very damaging uh, on several fronts. First, it's really crimped consumer confidence. Nobody really wants to go out to the movies or you know, to, to spend on a new car uh, when the very next week you could be locked down because there was a positive COVID case. So it's damp consumer confidence. It's damped business confidence as well. You don't have small businesses or large businesses looking to expand because at any time your supply chain might be disrupted with a lockdown. So because of all these factors, China's economy has really been struggling this year. It did very well in the first year of COVID when the rest of the world figuring out how to live with COVID um, in 2020. They did well in 2021. They did well in 2022, though, in the last quarter, in the second quarter of the year, GDP in China barely grew. It was 0.4%. It was 0.4% growth. Um, and a large part of that, that has to do with the constant cycle of locking down um, and this China's insistence on sticking with a zero COVID policy. I apologize to our listeners. I think the, the audio quality, uh, Lisa, of your feed might be a bit troubling. But let's end with one final question here. Um, we've done a number of, of shows about what Joanna Chu calls the human cost of China's growth. She has a new book out, China Unbound, A New World Disorder. Another person we had on the show was Amelia Pang on Chinese slave labor. The book is called Made in China, um, Hidden Cost of America's Cheap Goods. The more I listen to you, the more it seems that that's the cliche of, of China as a, a mass-producing uh, economy w- built on labor camps. But your vision of, of China as a surveillance state is much more high-tech is, in a way, the attempt to create this surveillance state the next step in Chinese development? In other words, with the surveillance state, we might see the closing of labor camps. We might see uh, less of a a negative human cost on on economic growth, or is that over-optimistic? I think it's a simplistic way of looking at it. I think China's troubles run far deeper than labor camps uh, and, and negative human capital. Um, China, China is looking into technology rather than to surveillance. If you, if you talk about economic growth, China is looking to technology to help its economy avoid the middle income trap more than it's looking to its surveillance state to do that. Because right now, China is stuck in a model where you know, the wages have stayed constant for a while. Um, and, and, you know, the one industry where wages were, was growing was the internet industry with Alibaba and Tencent and the like. But that's been subject to a huge crackdown um, in 2021. So you're, you're seeing kind of wages can stagnate now and an unemployment climb. China really needs like a technological breakthrough um, to push it to the next level. Right now, it's still most of the country is currently a more considered a developing country. If one developed country and go the way you know a lot of the Asian tigers have gone, like Korea, Japan, Singapore, it needs to raise wages, and to do that, it needs to raise productivity. And to raise productivity, it's looking to tech. It's not really looking into surveillance. Surveillance is all about command and control.